Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're listening to this. This is episode 13 of the Stromcast, and we are joined again rather quickly, um, or sooner than I expected to be, by Dr. Christopher R. Matthews. For those of you who missed the previous podcast, I'd recommend that you give it a listen. But Dr. Christopher R. Matthews is a professor of sociology from Nottingham Trent University. He came on last time to talk to us about the logic behind why people act, behave, and do the things they do, particularly around gym settings. And today we're going to address a few specific questions that came up off the back of that podcast, as well as some slightly more random Q&A. So we're going to have a look at some of the things around the current COVID situation. We're going to look at um, recreational drugs, uh, steroids, and we're going to look at um, naturally enhanced bodybuilding and some other things. Bits and bobs. It's a bit of a random mix-up of things, as well as I believe Dr. Matthews has a bit of a, a schedule of things he wants to cover as well. So without further ado, good afternoon, Dr. Matthews. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. All Good right. to be it's back. Been, it's been, you know, four whole weeks. <laughs> Is that what it's been? <laughs> um, Funny. So last podcast we did was very different to everything else we've done on the Stromcast, and it was received really well. Um, despite the fact that it had very different content to what we normally put out, because most of the stuff we put out is just, here is a problem that people have in the gym, such as tomorrow we're covering, if you're naturally always, you've naturally always been small, what do you do to gain weight? Uh, and the solution to that, whereas this has been more of an open discussion, um, which has made it quite interesting. So do you want to jump straight into the questions in chronological order that we've got to cover today, or have you got an agenda that you want to hit first? No, I, I, there's one that I thought we should start on, which was the um, comments that you had around some of the stuff that we talked about in, in terms of women in gyms and spaces. I think we should deal with that one first yeah. and then go through the chronological stuff that you've got. We didn't have a specific question on that. Um, we had lots of people saying, I'd love Dr. Matthews to expand on uh, the content around women in gyms and women in male-dominated spaces. Um, uh, and there were, there were things like, uh, I'd like to know more on Dr. Matthews' thoughts but there was nothing that was a specific question. So I suppose that's very, very open-ended. Um, now, something that did come up last time, uh, um, I think I told you at the time, was a friend of mine turned around and said, um, well, uh, why is Dr. Matthews mansplaining to me? What, what, yes. um, <laughs> what right does he have to talk about women in the gym? What would he know? He's a man. Um, and I think it maybe wasn't explained well enough at the time, but Dr. Matthews has had several pieces of work published on women in Combat sports, is that correct? Yep. Um, and it's a book on it. Studied at length. Yeah, it's not my main area, but you know, I've edited a book on it. I've written a paper with colleagues on it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's always good to have that critique, though, right? I'm more than happy for somebody to tell me I'm mansplaining because I'm a man, and, and I think most men need to be told that they mansplain in, in various areas. Um, but it reminded me of my my PhD student telling me that I just mansplained her. I was like, well, <laughs> that's my job, really. Unfortunately, it's the, uh, the, the tricky ground that we get in when you are a man, you have studied something and you understand it quite well. Yeah. Um, you may well understand it better than a woman. Um, and you don't understand her lived experience better, of course not, but you can definitely understand some of the research better. But I quite like the critique. I'm happy to deal with the critique. And I think because it was not a central part of what we were talking about, it probably does need a little bit more discussion. So the first thing to say is that when we spoke about this offline was that I mentioned to you um, 
a colleague of mine, Ian Lindsay, I think he has a PhD student or is in touch with a PhD student at University of um, Durham. Her name's Hester. And she's, she's um, I mentioned this to her that I was going to speak to you about this. And that my area will take a specific slant in relation to my work on men in, um, and men dominating these spaces. And that she could probably move in off that and, and talk about some other areas. So I think that's the first thing to say is all of my comments come from one very, very kind of clear avenue, but she could probably fill in some of the gaps there in terms of women's experiences. So I yeah. think if that's something we can try and look at, that would be good. Yeah. Um, but then, so the first kind of way of I get into this is I'm a man. I went into a male dominated space and the, the traditionally I'm academics, don't necessarily do too well in as we talked about in the past and to go into those sort of spaces any space which is dominated by 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 anyone um is essential and to go into that space and to kind of be accepted into it it's easier if you are that person so what i'm kind of getting at is that to go and do some of that certain some of that type of research helped that i was a bloke yeah. it helped me accepted into this laddie culture that i found myself in because i was a lad um, and can at least play that card relatively reasonably well. Um, so that's the first thing to say is, is, is we have to have people on the inside doing this research. Yeah. Now that does mean to say that I'm not, when I go into these spaces, telling the story of gym life from a woman's perspective, of course not. That's not what I can do. I can speak to him and I can ask some questions about it, but it's always a little bit more challenging. What it does mean is that I get a real good understanding of the men's experiences. What does that mean for understanding women's experiences? It seems like a, a weird thing to say, but what it means is it helps us understand how men dominate certain spaces. That's been my biggest contribution to academia. So once you start to understand that, then you start to feed in women's experiences into that. But without that initial understanding of how men dominate spaces, gym spaces, um, martial arts spaces, military spaces, police spaces whatever you can think of all these places that are still dominated by men so once we get that we, we can start to then understand how women enter those spaces and the problems that they may or may not have first thing is you're entering into space which is dominated by men so you have to if you're a woman and if you go into that space you have to think about the, the terms in which you're going into it in. and there's two there's two kind of clear ones one is you're going to be stigmatized in some way what are you doing here yeah. You know, that may not be the case in a lot of gyms these days. But I'm sure you can think of some gyms where it is still the case. Um, it's certainly the case in boxing gyms still. Yeah. Maybe people won't say it out loud, but there'll still be, you know, you, you'll be one of two or three women in a, in a boxing gym with 100 fighters in it. Still. I sent you a, a video from our gym the other day from before lockdown. You did, um, yeah. Where there were more women in there than men. Yeah. Um, so certainly around what I do, um, there's a real balance there. But I did go just to observe to an MMA gym a while ago. And I think there were probably 30 people and one female there. Yeah. Um, and there were lots of laddie jokey comments about fighting the girl. Yeah, there you go. And, and that's the only experience I've ever had of that environment, in fairness. Yeah, and, and, and that's, not a, that's not a, you know, that, that still happens to this day. And men still struggle with fighting girls. I fought, sparred, sparred, we're, not, we're not allowed to, license, we're not licensed in boxing to fight women even though I would argue we should be if you can get women the same size. They'd 100% fuck me up. <laughs> well, exactly. And this is the reason why. Um, but I've sparred with women and had really good sparring sessions with women. 
um, and tried to hit them and they've hit me and we've just got on with it because we were boxers and we tried to be boxers first and whatever else second. Anyway, so this stigma issue um, and the traditional one of women involved in sport was dykes, lesbians, all these kind of derogatory terms that were thrown at them. Now there is still, you know, there's, there's evidence that some of these spaces are dominated by lesbian subcultures. This is still the case. So, you know, can't, we can't say these things don't exist. But that's, that's often, although less now, stigmatised again. The other side of that is if you don't want to be stigmatised, then a, another phrase is um, emphasised femininity. So to go into that space requires almost a playing up of how much of a woman you are. I'm in a male-dominated space, but I am a real woman still. The classic one in boxing is the colour of your gloves. Guess what colour? Pink. <laughs> Pink gloves. And you know, you, you see this in gym. So, and, and hopefully people who are listening can kind of think to themselves, oh yeah, I know, I know people who do that. And they go into the gym and they avoid some of the male spaces and they do certain activities that we might think of as female activities. You know, the, the glute machines is the yeah. stereotype, right? And yeah, now, that thing you talk about over-feminizing though, I suppose that's still the case in, in pretty much every sport. Um, I went kayaking in Nottingham the other day, a uh, sport I haven't done for years, a sport I used to compete and haven't done properly for seven or eight years. And you can instantly tell the, the ladies because they were in pink boats. Um, and it's a sport where because of the equipment you wear, you have no other feature distinguishing your gender. Ah, yeah, because you've got the helmet on, you wear, right. you're wearing you makeup. Really um, Very cool, yeah. So yeah, pink boat, that's, that's how you know they don't have a penis. Yeah, so, so or maybe they do have. Um, we have to remember the trans issue now as well. We have to kind of be, be uh, at least aware of that to some degree, Richard. Um, so, so we have these, so, so these, these codes that, that, that basically, me and you wandering into a gym, like someone might look at us for a second because they don't know us, and then that's it. We go and do some bicep curls, go on, see you later, job done. Yeah. So easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. And it's a male-dominated space, and we're just completely accepted. It's, it's, this is a part of how men still dominate parts of the world. You know, you extrapolate this out the house of column the house of commons is still a male-dominated space yeah. then walk in it's very easy for men to walk in with a suit and tie so so broad, broad kind of lessons we can learn for this are quite important so the women have to walk in and do something else they don't have to often they choose to and there's stereotypes that they align with or not so so this is where the kind of the problems can come in however the solution or the the way of subverting the problem is embedded within the problem explain what that means I'll, I'll use the one that i'm most comfortable with which is fight sports boxing but it, if when i'm saying boxing you might as well say gym culture it's, it's very similar if i go into a boxing gym as a woman and i get really good what am i demonstrating i'm demonstrating that i'm just as good as these blokes if not better and that this traditional domination of these spaces is only because we've just learned it and we live it out so when I go and spar women who are better than me, now they might be smaller than me, but they're clearly better than me. That's great because it helps me realize and other people that I'm sparring with realize and the young lads in the gym realize that this relatively gnarly looking 40 year old bloke can get beat up by a 16 year old girl. That's quite important for those lads because it makes them realize that there's not some God given right for them to dominate this space and to be aggressive and that women can be and often are better than them in those spaces. The one I always give to the, lad, to the lads that I teach, all students that I teach, but it's, it's to try and make the lads think a little bit, is 
when Ronda Rousey was at the top of a game in mixed martial arts, yeah. who would, will tear your arm off. You know, any bloke who's not done martial arts, she will tear your arm off within seconds. It, there's, no, there's no denying it. There's no, oh, but I'm a bloke, I'm bigger than I, I can do this. It's all technique. She'll grab your arm and she'll tear it off. That's it. You'll have a broken arm and she'll walk off. It's to try and get lads to understand that that's the case and that violence isn't some sort of prerequisite of men. And just to take it back to gym culture, that muscle strength, power, coordination isn't some prerequisite of men, that women can have it. Yeah. Usually the reason why that they're not in those spaces is subcultural rather than any sort of physical thing. You know, Although I'm this not, is onto an interesting but, conversation because have you seen we're doing a gripper challenge at the moment? I have, yeah. So this led on to a conversation with someone um, who I'm not going to name because she'll be listening to this, but she was, um, she was a little bit annoyed at my uh, suggestion that if you don't have a penis, and it was, it was the terminology I used that if you don't have a penis that annoyed her, uh, and I spoke to her and explained that that's just because I am uh, a fossil and I think she was okay with it. But if you don't have a penis, you only have to do the first two. Because fundamentally, there will not be a woman alive, I don't believe, that can do the third one. Yeah. Okay. Now that's that's genetics. That's not that women are bad and men are good. Um, I can't do the second one, and I have said that I expect there to be a woman that can do the second one. So I've implied openly that there will be women out there that are stronger than me because I can't do the second one, and yeah. I believe there will be a woman who can because they can win a prize by doing the second one. Um, but I was forced to sit and question my wording um, because would true equality be that I said that everyone has to do all three? Would that be more fair? Yeah, so uh, let me not answer that question. Okay, <laughs> let, cool. me, let me be a very academic about it and not answer that question, but to just go back slightly around the houses to some degree. We can't deny fundamental differences between men and women, but those fundamental differences are often exaggerated way beyond what they are by the social processes which we grow up within. So let's, let's just... Say again. So I was right. No. <laughs> so, so we can't deny them. One, we, you specifically as a media influencer, I know you don't like that, but you are, <laughs> deal with it. We have to be very careful with our language. One. Because why? What, what happens if your lovely young daughter grows up thinking that fundamentally she can't do some of the things that men can do? Well, it's going to make her practices and her life and the things that she does and the way she behaves live that out. But what if in certain situations that is the truth? Okay, let, let me just deal with it. Let me go through it. These are difficult points and I have to dot a few together. So what then we have is a situation where young girls and, and, and women might assume because of statements like that and other statements around women, what, what we call the myth of female frailty, that they simply can't do these things so they don't try. If they don't try, then we never get to see a woman who could do the second gripper not do it because she's never tried at it. Yeah. So then what we've got is an inherently unequal playing field because of the learned processes, the nurture, not the nature. So what I'm suggesting is we have to control all of that as much as we can. We have to wind ourselves in, encourage women to do these things as much as possible. Women have to ignore blokes like you and me who might say things like this and slip up. Um, even though you know, we're fundamentally, we, don't, we wouldn't think of ourselves as sexist, still we've learned to live our lives over the last maybe 40 years. And I grew up in a world that was very different to what it is now. And though we try our best, we still make mistakes and we'd have, we have to apologize for them and be better at it. We may have to ignore that, push past it. And, and they do, and they are doing more of that. 
then at that point, if we can get to this world where we don't do these things just because we think we, that's normal and that women just are weaker in some way, then what we get to is a world where those physiological differences might actually be more clear. So we might actually see that, yes, there is the 100 metre sprint time is probably going to remain as a men's world record. Yeah. But we'll also see what, as, as physiology, some physiologists have predict, predicted, that the female marathon record should be biomechanically, sorry, better than the men's marathon record. Yeah. And what we then start to see is this equality play out and the biological differences, yes, they're there, but they're not then set in stone as some sort of thing which, which we, can never, like, we can never get past. But it's, it's more of a, let's just, let's just be aware that some of these biological differences that we think are differences may well be myths or exaggerated because of the way that we teach our kids to grow up. Yeah, I guess in my head, if I had said, I can't do the second one of these, so I don't expect the woman to be able to, that would have been unacceptable. Uh, I mean, there's a relative, like you've said, there's a relative truth to that. I mean, how, how, how tall I'm, are you? I'm sure there will be a woman that can do the second one. I haven't found her yet. True, but how tall are you? Six foot. How much do you weigh? 110 kilo. How many women do you know at that size? So not many. Not many, <laughs> no. So the point would just be, I mean, just take it away from sex and just go, I'm this big. I don't reckon some, I don't reckon there's many people under six foot tall and hundred kilos who can do this. That's me. I'm five yeah. eleven and, and just under hundred kilos. I will not be able to do that thing. I've got terrible grip strength because I've got little hands anyway. Yeah. So, but that, that wouldn't have been a sexist statement, but it would have also captured the vast majority of women, been a, been a legitimate statement, but captured the vast majority of women who are, as we know, smaller than men on average. Does that mean that there are women who are bigger than men? Of course, there's loads of them. And loads who are stronger, far stronger than me, far stronger than you. We know this. Yeah, yeah, that some of them train here. There you go. So, but, but aligning the statement to body weight, which is actually what you mean. This is not, this is not a, a female thing. Like a female muscle is the same as a male muscle, right? Uh, I, you know what? It's a really Bi biologically, difficult it's conversation. The same. So I'm lucky enough to know some of the strongest deadlifters in the world, female deadlifters in the world. Um... I'm just going to confer. Race, female deadlift world record at the moment, unsuited. This is podcast. podcast. About 280 kilos. Now, I've deadlifted more than that, and I'm a terrible deadlifter. Right. But the very best female in the world ever, 280 is the record. Yeah, so the, the way that we would probably explain that is, because I think we, just, we, we do have to accept that a, a, a biological muscle of a male and a female under a microscope looks the same so the way we would probably suggest that that gets explained is one the amount of people who are drawn into those sports of different sexes testosterone exposure in teenage years you could suggest that as well but let, let's go with the amount of women who are drawn to that sport first minimal of those women how many of them remain in it because of the, the stigma maybe they get sure. drawn out of it of those women who are the ones who may want to do some of the training practices um long term which lead them to that world record probably less still now how many blokes are drawn to it loads how many blokes love it get massive and get rewarded for it loads how many blokes want to stay in it get massiver do loads of drugs and stay in it even longer loads yeah. so you could just you could play it as a numbers game now 
again, I, I'm not denying that there's a difference. I'm just suggesting that the the sociological differences. Well, you know, I'm a sociologist, but the sociological differences can really explain it as well, if not better than some of the biological differences. Yeah, I mean the, the commitment levels as well, because I can take a considerable amount of gear without any long-term issues, whereas a female okay. can't. Um, so if yeah. they want to do that, which is completely cool, that's a big commitment. Yeah, that's a long-term commitment. Yeah. So one more thing, just on this, what happens is the debate doesn't go to the depth that we've just gone to. The debate goes to you've just said something sexist, you're a bad person, and then you have to apologise, which is correct. But with a little bit more nuance to it, it's it's like the phrase isn't if you haven't got a penis, it's if you're not my size, you're probably not, or spent loads of time in the gym training to try and be big and strong. You're but probably not going to have to do this. Ah, but for the purpose of the competition, I had to set criteria, which was to win a shirt, you have to do a task. For a male, you need to do all three of these things. For yeah. a female, I only expect you to do two. Yeah. Now, I think the thing that caused the problem, having had that conversation, was the, the choice of wording. But if you yeah. don't have yeah, of course, yeah. I think uh, most women would accept that to be able to, to think that they're going to hit the thing that most blokes are struggling with, I think most women would accept that. But yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the terminology. And that's all it is, I think, at this, this point. These, these kind of debates, when you have them with people face to face, we work through them, we talk about them. But when it's done online in a snippet, it's, yeah. it, it gets, stuff gets irate. And actually, it's like, uh, you know, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. Oh, OK, really? OK, cool. No, I get what you mean, because I'm not as big as you, so I probably can't do it. And I think this, this is one of the problems we have with social media, one of the problems with dramatic, clip, clickbaity um titles on youtube pages all of this sort of stuff it's to get this sort of interaction unfortunately yeah but when we have these conversations down the pub it's very rare that it turns to you know actual blokes yeah yeah, you know, yeah. except for if you're just some pissed pissed douchebag but that, that's not that's not what we're talking about is it okay well we, i think we've done that one to death haven't we maybe yeah um <laughs> we're gonna get so, i think we're gonna get cancelled for this we're gonna get me too and cancelled at the same time no i'll be fine i'll be fine people, <laughs> no, people understand that i'm I'm basically a dinosaur, yeah. uh, despite my boyish good looks. So I've so, got a bloody career built on this somehow. <laughs> um, if I could start at the one that I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, Dr. Matthews, your thoughts around recreational drugs, the crossover to steroids, and the way in which one may lead to the other or vice versa? Yeah, so normally when we have these questions of your thoughts on, um, we, I think most people started pushing back on thoughts on this, but actually I quite like it on this one. <clears throat> because I can only really offer my thoughts. Um, I'm not aware of research that's been done on it. There will be some. So some thoughts, and I think you have some similar thoughts to this as we talked about earlier. So you may chime in on this with your example, but the thoughts are, and I come from a position of, as I, as I think I've talked in the last podcast or on the OPD podcast, of relatively consistent and regular recreational drug use, um, which, happened and at one point i didn't do it and at another point i did do it um some probably point in my mid-20s um not that i was super anti that sort of stuff i've always been relatively open-minded but you know drugs are a stigmatized thing and we're scared of them as young people and what was the uh the leah betts thing everyone who did ecstasy was going to die and all this sort of stuff anyone who's not aware just have a quick search of that in the 90s it was a big for about this girl who died from doing ecstasy um and she didn't die from ecstasy because you can't die from ecstasy she died from um taking too much water in 
Is this like when we say someone didn't die from steroids, they just happened to die because they've taken loads of steroids and it led to... Something else happened, yeah. 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 It's an ecstasy apologist. So, so I guess what I'm saying is the, the, any, anybody who is what they call straight-laced forever will be straight-laced forever. Anyone who starts to delve into certain drugs, regardless of the drug, may well find that the barriers to the other drugs get broken down. And I think a really good kind of example of this is when people start to drink and they realize that drinking is loads of fun <laughs> and it can open up other stuff. Yeah. And I remember, and, and then the one key one for me was I grew up in that age group of ecstasy was bad, right? We were told that yeah. the previous group, the previous cohort of, of people had the, the summer of love in the nineties of people doing loads of free parties and taking ecstasy. And then, it was bad for us. We were told by everyone it was bad. And then once I did my first ecstasy tablet and found out it wasn't bad, it was effing amazing. It was one of the best experiences of my life. All of a sudden I was like, hold on a minute. Does that mean that I've been lied to about other drugs? And the problem is where well, we have these pro basically prohibition of drugs is that eventually people realize, as I'm, I'm sure you're gonna be able to tell us with steroids, that people go, oh, I took some steroids and I didn't die. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I took some X and I didn't die. I took some Y and I didn't die. And all of a sudden, people go, oh, basically I've been lied to. So does that mean that I've been lied to about everything? And, it, and instead of having an education pro, 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 uh, process about drugs, smart use, organized use, understanding things, and maybe taxing them and making sure they're at a, a high level of quality, yeah. what we have is this prohibition where people, when they realize that they, the drugs didn't kill them, all bets are off. Let's go. Give me all the drugs. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and people don't, that, that's what I'm suggesting we, this could lead to. So yeah. that's, my, that's my thoughts on it. Does that happen? Maybe. I don't know. I, I'd have to look into the research to give you a better answer on the kind of data on it. I think we spoke a while ago because I get frustrated quite often at research that, to my mind, seems like something we could have answered on the back of a fag packet. And <laughs> yeah. uh, there was the, the study yeah. that came out a while ago that showed that creatine was a gateway drug. Yeah. And, and to me, all that showed was that people who are interested in increasing their performance yes. are more likely to take things that increase your performance. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, creatine doesn't equal another drug. Creatine means I want to get better at bench pressing. Really What's going to do that? Improving your performance. Yeah. And this is one of the things that can do that, exactly. Exactly. So um, it's another measure, actually, isn't it? It's a, it's a measure of are you interested in supplementation for performance? That's what the measure yeah. is. It's not creatine equals. Yeah, so I think with steroids and recreational drugs, what's interesting, what I've seen, a lot of people when they get into bodybuilding, they get into it because they're interested in clean living and health and whatever. Yeah. Uh, and I know a lot of them when they get into it would never take steroids. Um, I don't think I ever had that mindset. It's something that I saw from a young age, but it, it's generally the thing. Uh, then people will realize that to get far in the sport, that it's kind of going to have to likely be a thing. Um, and then once they start taking steroids, they become much more open to trying new things. And that's certainly been my experience. Um, I was straight laced, straight, yeah, straight laced for a very long time. Um, so I certainly wouldn't say in response to the person's question that if you take steroids, you'll take recreational drugs. If you take recreational drugs, you'll take steroids. But I think it's, it's fairly obvious that if you're open to taking anything, then you're more likely to be open to taking other things. I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. One thing that we just have to factor into, it, and into that is what we talked about last time is around subcultures as well. Which subcultures are you in? Are you in the, in that laddie, cocaine, short shorts, 
big biceps vest go to Ibiza culture, well, there's, there's maybe a chance that you'll do some steroids to be in shape for that. You know, what's the, the thing that TM Cycles always watches when it's on this beach program or some shit? Yeah, I haven't watched TM stuff. What, anymore, but right, he, well, he, the, he's the obsessed with these programs. The one combination of drugs I will try and pull people away from having a personal experience of someone passing from it will be cocaine and steroids. Yeah, do totally. That. Sounds people brutal, doesn't it? But, um, but, but within that subculture of that kind of like laddie sort of space, you, you, you know, th those lads, you see, yeah, you see those, you see those, those bodies that a lot of those lads have. And I'm not saying they're not attainable naturally. Of course they are. Do I think they're always attained naturally? No, I think they cut corners. Yeah. And it goes into... So the thing is, there's that subcultural issue, and the other the other side of it is, you know, let's talk about recreational drugs because recreational drugs isn't one thing. But if you smoke marijuana, is it also likely that you're going to be doing trembolone? Probably not. <laughs> there's not a... the bodybuilders love weed, and I only found okay. out like three years ago. Okay, so um, it might go because I my... worked Dave Palumbo, an American coach, and I was struggling to get my last meal, and he said, "We'll just smoke a bit of weed." I was like, "Sorry, what?" Is that a thing? Oh, that's a thing. That everyone does that. Okay, fine. Yeah. So the other way, the people who are m m doing steroids and for performance might look at that as a way to help appetite. But you know, it, it, to use a stereotype, the, the the lads who are sat watching Netflix and playing video games, you know, fifty kilos soaking wet, <clears throat> who like smoking weed, and that's fine. That's that. You know, I'm I'm not critiquing that as a life call, uh, as a life choice, but they're probably not at the same time taking loads of steroids sure. it's, it's just a very different subculture and, and and there are crossovers but people tend to align with a subculture and over time that might shift and if you've been in that subculture and you've been using different let's just call them illicit substances whatever they are yeah. if you move into a different subculture it might not be a surprise that you lose different illicit um, substances there i mean that that's a way to think about it so there's some thoughts on it anyway yeah um Maybe that lad, if he wants to ask another question, it's like, what is the specific drugs he's talking about? <laughs> or um, the, other, the other one to just consider is that we, we kind of touched on is um, performance enhancing in the brain. That's something oh, yeah. that I find we don't talk enough about. Um, you know, in my subculture of work, academia, I'm amazed when I mention to people that I take something like uh, Support Max Neuro and people yeah. are like, whatever. Like you, you don't comprehend like how much this could support your your work life balance. Yeah, um, in a variety of ways, it's certainly helped me. I mean, that's because I have issues with boxing as well. But T Tariq tried to get it in. He was he's friends with um, I say friends with I think he was drilling um, a girl from Cambridge who was a law student, uh, and he tried to get those guys. I think we sent a load of samples in for them to try. And they just didn't get it. And I think a lot of that's because of the way it's packaged, yeah. the way it's branded. Um, yeah. So we yeah. have done a, a, an alternative label. Same product, but with a more family-friendly yeah. label. Wow. You know, a white label talking about brain health and supporting memory recall, that kind of thing. Um, so that's something to maybe run with at some point. You know, just I had a conversation with someone today who, during lockdown, um, has had a hard time because he's got 10 hours of childcare and he's trying to work at the same time so that's lent to him putting loads of weight on largely because he's been drinking and yeah. drinking is self-medication now i've self-medicated with booze in the past not to the point where it's been a fundamental issue but i've just had a couple of glasses of wine every night just to chill out after a stressful day so instead ashwagandha yeah 
And I said that to him and he was like, what? And, and just like blew it out. And I'm like, all right, we'll carry on drinking a bottle of wine tonight then. Yeah, yeah. Don't consider ashwagandha. And anybody who's listening who hasn't looked at your ashwagandha product, just, just look at it, look at the research and you'd be like, oh yeah, that would be better than drinking a bottle of wine. It yeah. might yeah. not work. Who knows? But it's, it's, it's 40 quid, whatever it is a bottle. Sorry, at all. 20 pounds. For 20 quid. Yeah, I was thinking of Neuro, sorry. But, but it, like, I was like, you know what? You can ignore me. Ignore everything I'm saying. Just give it a go. Yeah. And instead of having a glass of wine, have four capsules, like properly hit it and see what happens. And then, yeah, and, and I, it'll have the I same effect. If you're looking at it for stress relief, just there you go. But, but people go to what they know, and booze is fine. Ashwagandha, that sounds like some bodybuilding. That sounds like drugs, yeah. It's, yeah you stupid. go back and forth with a lot of people on a lot of compounds, but ashwagandha is one of those things where you're like, you know what, there's more data on that than ibuprofen. Right. Like, there is, there is so much positive data on ashwagandha, particularly cancer. Yeah. It's insane. Um, so yeah, recreational drugs, they're good, do loads of them. Um, <laughs> it's basically what I said. Pubs opening before the gyms, seems a bit silly, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I like the pub, and I've got a home gym, so my thoughts are, whatever. <laughs> but, but it is a bit ridiculous, right? The logic of, um, we need to be healthier as a nation, which I think he's said, Bojo. Yeah, and half price gym. takeaways. Yeah. And then there's not open gyms. And, I, and I, I know you probably don't train in a, a normal gym like I do, but I... Again, it's one of those things where you sound a bit selfish. We've got our own gym. It's not affected yeah. us. But I feel terrible, particularly for PTs and things. Um, it's, it's not that I would sit there and make the argument that gym... I mean, you, you know my personal opinions on the current situation, but I wouldn't sit there and make the arguments that gyms are safe, but I could certainly sit and make the argument that they're, they're as safe as pubs or more so. Yeah. Um, all day long. And um, when you take into account the relative density of population that attend the two things, it seems like a drop in the ocean. Plus, what do people do when in there? They can stay clean and be clean. And when yeah. you go into a pub, you eventually <laughs> don't stay clean. No. So, but then I think just one thing just to counter it is economically wise, so many people work in pubs and yeah. so many people spend money in pubs. If you just look at it in a hard economic style, we've got to get the economy going as well, as well as trying to manage the, the deaths. Yeah. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And you can't, if, to, be fair, to be fair to the government, which I very seldom am, you, you, if you just let everything go and we just end lockdown, if there's a vector for this virus, we yeah. won't know what it is. Whereas now, if everything's staggered by two weeks, they might be able to possibly argue that, oh, it was the pubs that did it, or yeah. it was the gyms. Now, we don't so think... What you're gonna... saying is open the pubs, wait two weeks for the R8 to go up, then open the gyms, then blame the gyms. But perhaps that would be what they will do, because they're horrible Tories. But <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the counter-argument to all of this is we've got to, we can't just let everything go. It's got to be staggered. No. No. And, and in that respect, you know, for the actually unfortunately the limited population who go to gyms versus the population who go to pubs yeah. no I, I, it's, a political movement it, political move sorry you can you can understand why they do it from a political sense you don't have to agree with it um yeah. the stuff around you know we need to be healthier as a nation half price takeaways and we'll yeah. what is it quadruple the number of gastric band surgeries that we do is that, is that thing? something like that yeah um it seems to be ridiculous um but and, and again, the, the, the takeaway, I've got friends who own restaurants. I love a takeaway. It's great, I guess. Um, it just seems to be somewhat counterintuitive to the message. And in the week as well. I, huh? if, I, if I have takeaway in the week, which I won't, yeah. I'll still have takeaway at the weekend because I have takeaway at the weekend as a treat. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> like, take away like every other day. So yeah, I, I just as a, as a rule, I tend to not drink in the week and not eat crap food in the week. That's just yeah. one of the things that makes me not be obese. So I'm not going to break that for this. And also, yeah. just one other thing on this: who are the people that are going to go out and do this stuff? It's the middle classes. It's a treat for the middle classes. The working classes that need support can't afford to go and do it even for a tenner. Yeah. Let alone twenty quid. So it's it's a it's a it's a real it's a very political move. It's only for a month. And so when I first started Strom 11 years ago, there was no VAT on supplements because they were considered important to keeping the nation healthy. Right. We then put VAT on supplements, I think it was nine years ago. So our margin has disappeared to the tune of 12.5% or wherever, no, 17.5% and then it went up to 20%. And they've now announced a VAT cut to 5% on food, help get the economy going, but not on supplements. And I'm, I'm very frustrated by this because supplements come under the same tax code as food which means the courier companies won't insure any of our parcels because they class it's the same as sending a loaf of bread or a cupcake. But I can't get the VAT cut on it because they made a specific exemption for supplements. Yeah. Can't. Um, so, a um, couple of questions for me and then um, one for yourself. Um, someone asked, should I go on a keto diet? <laughs> if you don't like eating carbs, sure. That's as far as I can be bothered to go into it. You know what? I won't. No. I'm... One of the big things that keto zealots talk about, for those of you who don't know what a keto diet is, where have you been? It's where you eat no carbs. You eat more fats than protein. The traditional keto diet is, is kind of 60 or 70% fat and 30% protein. Most bodybuilders actually do kind of a, a high protein, medium fat diet and no carbs, which is, is not a proper keto diet. But one of the big things that keto zealots bumble on about is that it's more efficient. It's a more efficient form of dieting because your body can use ketones as fuel if i want my car to use as much fuel as possible i want it to be less efficient not more efficient and if we're using a keto diet to lose body fat we want it to be less efficient not more efficient the whole thing's a nonsense only do it if you really 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 like that style of diet i can see no metabolic advantage of doing it other than that unless you've got epilepsy the, the only other thing to add in is the diet that works is the diet that you can stick to right yeah and i don't know anyone that took the keto diet i know people that stuck for six months i even know one person who stuck to it for a year and said it was their new lifestyle eventually everybody will fall off that wagon yeah and, and train it do you want to train hard so i mean you get the cards yeah. in you but then yeah, just, well, just people, people well, insist that they can train harder on it you like people insist that they function better relatively yeah. but yet strangely eventually they all go quiet yeah, bet, but then one, one point just from kind of my perspective is a parcel here. That means the dog's going to go mental. Hopefully my partner will get the dog. Anyway, from my perspective, um, th th this highlights that, that you know, there's some studies out there, there's some ways it can work with different populations, all the rest of it, and then it gets taken and someone grabs hold of it, usually some sort of fitness influencer, to try and make some sort of clickbait title, some money on a book, whatever instead of and and this person may well be one of those people um educating people as to what you've just talked about and the difference between macros and the, the just the basic idea of what a calorie deficit is yeah and i think it, once people understand that they go well keto doesn't seem to make sense although i might have a go at it and if it works yeah. for me i'll have a go but it's not because it's got any magical properties right yeah exactly. it's sold it's sold as if it is because people want to make money out of it. And that, there's the fundamental issue from kind of a more sociological perspective. It's not, it, in fact, 
the people who do videos claiming the the fundamental magical properties of it yeah those videos tell you more about that person and what they're doing why they're doing it than anything about the legitimacy of the diet of the diet yeah they tell you they're a snake oil salesman a lot of the time yeah and they're normally small um <laughs> I, I could never recommend it for body but one of the things <laughs> is that a lot of my customer base and followers now are not much as like heavyweight bodybuilding has always been the thing that i've been excited about I, I know a lot of my customers are not that and honestly if you enjoy that style of diet then crack on but it, it's rare i think one of the big things with it is you jump on a keto diet or any diet where you remove carbs from your diet and you can jump on the scales in four days and be five six oh, yeah. there you go yeah so, so that makes it sellable right yeah. lose 10 pounds in 10 days or whatever i sell it i get the money off you and then it's not my problem two, four weeks later you're desperate for a mars well not a mars bar some, some pasta you eat it the weight goes back on yeah not my problem so yeah. it's just open to abuse and, yeah. and, it, and it's not it's very sellable but it's a sellable thing which doesn't give what are the main principles of a diet what what is periodization of a diet and nutrition and what are the fundamental elements of a diet that we need to know and educate people about it, it, it's, it's devoid of all of that which means long term it's it's usually destined to fail because yeah. you know the people who, who, who change their lives around in, in regards to diet is people who really understand it, get the education um, and, and can work through it in that way. Next one. Sorry, someone's arguing with me. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. There's one about I wish natural. people wouldn't argue with me. There was, um, there's one about natural versus not natural, which was one I think we could get into. Yeah, um, you mentioned the grey area between natural and enhanced bodybuilding. Um, what do you mean by that? Now, I, I assume you're talking about kind of slightly assisted people, but I could be completely wrong. I think that was something that I'd kind of touched on in the OPD podcast. Okay. And, it's, and it's, it, the way I'm interpreting that question is this notion of what natural is or isn't. So, you know, there are a lot of people who say, uh, um, there's a lot of prep coaches who will not train people who are going into natural competitions who are enhanced. Fair enough, right? Because you're cheating the system. But okay, the way that I look at this is through a lens of um, what natural even means in today's world. So, so normally, I'll put, uh, for those who are watching, because I'll host this video eventually on my website, I'll put glasses on. Like, what's natural about wearing glasses? No one accused me of like being enhanced because I've got glasses on, but uh, there's nothing natural about them. What's natural about waking up in the morning with a hangover and having an aspirin? Do you know what I mean? It's like, what, what, it's fine, but it's not natural. But no one would accuse me if I had an aspirin, like, oh, Chris, you, you know, you really should stay natural. It's like, no, I've well, got a hangover, so I'll have an aspirin. You had some white willow bark instead. You made some tea out of white willow bark. Yeah, so then we move into magic mushrooms, let's say. Like, what, like, well, that yeah. is na that's natural, but the yeah. experience is not natural experience. So, so, so poppies, you know? Yeah, so then, then go even the other way. Is physio natural? Is an ice bath natural? What about, this is, this is a great analogy for people. Um, what's, what's the difference between EPO, yeah. which is, a, you know, as we would, WADA would class it, an unnatural drug. And let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. EPO versus going training at altitude. Yeah. The difference is that most people can afford EPO, but most people can't afford training at altitude. So what that means is that sports teams, America, uh, England, 
France, a few others that can go to altitude during the summer can get the benefits of that sort of training because they can afford it. If someone balances the playing field by using an unnatural supplement, EPO, um, we, we start to have these issues. The point is that I'm trying to get at is that the difference between natural and enhanced and in this world that we currently live in is ridiculous. To, to even try and kind of like, where's our meat from? Is there anything natural about the process of sausages being farmed? <laughs> Uh, I, I, yep. sorry pigs being farmed and turned into sausages the the the, the drugs that are put into them like this the, yeah. the, the the whole natural clean all that sort of stuff is largely a complete nonsense based yep. on the, the hypocritical nature of society people should accept that we're all hypocrites we just have to accept that the world that we live in makes us fundamentally hypocritical try and be ethical in this place but i'm going to be unethical here i just can't help it yeah. My, 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 you know, I'll try and be ethical and recycle, but my T-shirt was probably made in Vietnam by, you know, a, a five-year-old child. You got some little Chinese earbuds in. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, there so, is mentioned bigger, stronger, faster, which is on. Sorry, yeah, go on. I think it's by um, uh, um, Mark Bell's brother. I forget his name. Um, but that's about steroids in the gym in America, um, and they they do the thing about EPO. They, they do a chart, and it's training at altitude. Um, and um, sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber, fine, EPO and um, blood transfusions. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, it's a really good documentary if you want to check it out. It's fun. The other one that people put into that sort of, like, oh, you shouldn't do this for these reasons is because it's against the values of the sport. You know what I mean? And <laughs> so... I'm laughing at the face. People who are watching on, on the podcast, but which just pulled a funny face. It was a very ugly, <laughs> stupid face. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah. Values of the sports a funny thing, you know, because it's what's determined. Who decides what that is? Yeah, winning's winning, as yeah. said by Dom Toretto. There you go. So, I mean, you, obviously, the values of bodybuilding are, you know, it, it quite quite clear that. Yeah you should have this sort of aesthetic look and whatnot. Although actually it's literally not clear, is it what it's supposed to look like? But yeah. when you add this into sport, there's this notion of sport having these really positive values. The stuff that your parents, your PE teachers say why you should do sport, because it will help bring people together and you might learn leadership and teamwork. Yeah, yeah all right, fine. When you're five. We were just finishing up on... Um... Grey areas between enhanced and natural bodybuilding. Uh, I can't remember if there's anything else you want to cover on that, Dr. Matthews. And Dr. Matthews' computer crashed. Yeah, classic uh, academic has a MacBook and it it's crashed. Work. Yeah, you can't be an academic and not have a MacBook. One thing that just came into my head, which is connected to this and another topic from earlier, was um, legalization, criminalization of drugs as well. I know it's slightly off topic, but one thing that I think we should just point on a little bit, it's connected to all these issues. And a lot of the people who are listening will probably be quite keen on thinking about it to, to a degree, is um, we still have a war on drugs and it's insane. And, and I don't care from what position you talk about, whether it's um, in the enhanced world of sport or whether it's recreational or whatever, prohibition of drugs doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. It pushes it into the hands of criminals. I was, I was listening to a podcast recently. Um, we were just talking about the rising crime that happened when they tried to um, ban alcohol in America, prohibition. Mm. The day that they stopped it, 
the crime went down. It's exactly the same. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, any way, and anywhere you're kind of calling for these things to be regulated by the government is problematic because it's the government. But I'd rather the government than Al Capone and the mafia and, you know, the triads regulating whatever it is we're taking. You know, it, it's so frustrating. How many, how many times, how many times have you heard people, um, you know, like, um, crimes happening between the head of a one brewery and another brewery yep. like like or the lads on the corner selling booze going have a war with another pub nearby over like rights for the area it's like jesus so i just i, I wish that people could really get on with um liberalization on this sort of stuff and one of the problems that i, I find is that it, within the world that, that i that i'm aware of not so much now you know I'm 40 i don't really go out at that, in that sort of way anymore but in that world, those sort of people, I think I said this to you last time, will, will, will be adamant that other drugs should be, are wrong, are bad. And then in your world, there'll be people that are, oh, those drugs are really bad. And, 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 and no drugs are fundamentally bad. You can abuse all drugs. But if they're not legalised, they're Cyanide's open to be... Say again? Cyanide's pretty bad. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Fair enough. Um, and there's no goodness to it. I'm aware. Not really, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so drugs that we can understand that someone might want some good out of just should be regulated and legalized. I think everyone, I, I, if anyone, if anyone, I think most people agree with that with quote unquote their drugs that they like. I suppose the problem but, is that we have shown consistently that we can't be trusted to do fucking anything without acting like cunts about it. No, that's not true. That's not true. If you look at the, the, ev the available evidence we've got, of countries that liberalise drugs, it's far safer, far better regulated, and the violence around it goes down. And just to add one factor in, when we look at the way in which recreational drugs are policed in this country, it opens up a variety of different issues around who's policed. And let me tell you who isn't policed. White middle-class people in my area are not policed for their drug use. But in different parts of Nottingham, young working-class lads from black and ethnic minority cultures and groups are policed. So it opens up a right minefield of people. And all we need to do is not police it, legalize it, regulate it, educate about it. Anyway, rant over. What you're saying is that I'm all right. Well, well I mean, in all situations, I'm a white middle-class academic. I, in all situations, I'm all right. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I don't want to sound like a complete knob, but I'm, I'm the privileged. Yeah, you, know, you are as well. You know, in you, you know, we might have problems in our life, but they're very different to other people's. And it's my job. I identify as working class. Yeah, good. I mean, I mean, I, I, I am from working class background, but I'm certainly not now. I'm certainly upper upper middle classes. Like, you know, it is what it is. But, but the the fact the fact of the matter is, is that it's people like me and you that have to have to fight for this sort of stuff to change because we're the people that get listened to. Shouldn't be. No one should listen to me. But they do. People, you know, think that stuff that people like me say is important for some reason. It, it, it shouldn't be, but it's it, it, some, some, you know, that, that's the class issue. But anyway, yes, you're right. I'm also, I haven't got kids, so I don't even care about the environment anymore. I still, <laughs> I still recycle. Yeah, it's fucked by the time that's a problem. Yeah, anyway. I won't be here, so it don't matter. But yeah, still, <clears throat> I am all right, but I'm not. I want to try and change things to the positive and liberalisation of, of drugs is an essential part of that for me. Anyway. Um, so moving on slightly, completely different tangent. 
what blood samples would you recommend before going on cycle? Um, oh God, I need to burp. Probably shouldn't have eaten that whole brisket while you were talking. It's funny because these questions came in in response to stuff for me, and I ain't got a clue. I think I haven't <laughs> chatted about you much recently. <laughs> Dr. Matthews, and they assume that you're an actual, you know, the kind of doctor that's used. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, I can't find you on a plane. Someone has a heart attack. Is there a doctor on here? Oh yeah, I'm a doctor. Are you going to help? No, no, not at all. I can explain why he's had a heart attack in terms of socioeconomic factors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, stress at work. <laughs> so yeah, blood samples would you recommend before going on a cycle? Um, with this, I would be led by your health practitioner, and I don't mean your GP. I mean go to someone like Eval, come to the Hedge Project, speak to someone like. Um, Dr. Dean, youth revisited, uh, and see what's specifically appropriate to your situation. If you're asking for a general, then if you just get a full blood count or full blood work done at any of those services, that will cover everything you need to do. The things you want to be paying attention to are, what is your natural testosterone level are you before you've taken anything? Um, are there any issues around liver and kidneys? Is your liver and kidney function compromised before you start? And are the things in your blood count, so things like your platelets, your red blood cell count, your hematocrit, are they in range? Those are the things that are maybe going to be skewed. We want to make sure that they're normal before you start. And we want to have a reference point for where we want to get your testosterone back to when you've finished your cycle. Anything more comprehensive than that, I would be guided by an expert regarding your personal circumstances. You know what, though? Isn't it funny that you have to qualify the health practitioner that they should go to? Yeah. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be good if someone who's considering doing that could go to see their actual GP who knows them and knows their history yeah. and could go, here's some of the issues with this, or at least then say, no, this is where you go. some GPs out there that are good. Though. A good friend of mine, I'm actually going to see her tomorrow, is a GP, and she'll regularly refer people down to us. Yeah. Um, the GP that I spoke to, I haven't been to a, an NHS doctor for four years at this point, um, but the GP that I used to go to, was fairly comfortable in saying, look, this isn't really my area of expertise, but you tell me what you need and we'll look at it, sort it. Um, so there are some that are, in my personal experience, that are competent or at least are aware that they're not competent, which is it's just as good, to be completely honest. Yeah, it's a general practitioner, isn't it? General. So they're supposed to be not experts. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know about something, as long as you they say, so we're going to look into how we can find out. Um, but a lot of people, I'm sure, will have had the experience of speaking to a GP and just being told, well, don't take steroids, they're bad. Right, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Which is not helpful at all. Yeah. Because you're going to do it anyway. And if you get given that advice or that attitude by your GP, you're likely to just ignore them. And it goes back to our conversation in the first podcast about stigma, isn't it? And how damaging that can be. Damaging for people's ability to seek health if they feel stigmatised. We need to avoid that as much as possible. Cool. Um, so, last couple? Yeah, it's last one, actually. Cool. Um, and it's, I suppose this is one that could go on forever, but hopefully won't. Um, you've got some of the negative aspects of training. You also hinted at some of the positives. What ideas or lessons can we take away from the gym? Yeah, you know, um, when, I, when I do these sort of talks where I'm, I'm largely speaking to people who are pro whatever the sport is, um, my first job is to be able to get people to start thinking critically about their assumptions that it's good. So we spent a lot of time last time thinking about performance and why performance can be bad, what that can lead you to. Um, I do this a lot with my first year students. First year is they all come to study sport with us because they think sport's the best thing in the world. And I then spend as much time as possible telling them that sport's horrific and it damages people. So I spend a lot of time doing that. And then by the third year, I'm doing 
something in between, which is finding the middle ground. I think we can do that with this. If you can get a good balance on training, which as we've discussed loads, because you've helped me with training, supplementation, and you've helped me kind of get a grip of like my dodgy knees and all the rest of it. I've, for the first time in 40 years of being involved in sport, well, I suppose, all right, whatever, 35 years or whatever, I've got a half decent relationship with training. Don't train too hard. I don't do stuff that hurts me. And I've recovery, I manage my recovery properly. And it's because of kind of thinking about it, but also pulling my ego out of it. And now what I've got is a sustainable approach to training, which is hopefully going to keep me healthy for the rest of my life, but also gives me purpose, gives me structure. And I think for young people, I mean, it's too late for me, but for young people, bodybuilding can be amazing for finding that structure and for giving people some sort of focus, which they can then use the lessons. And this is the key thing that I want out of anyone involved in sport and physical activity is what are the lessons that are genuinely good for other parts of your life? So not, how can I cheat? How can I wangle the system? How can I be a bully? But by applying myself in the following organized ways through sport, I've learned this. And if I do that in studying or at workplace or in my relationships, I can apply myself, think about it, work through these issues, and I can basically live a better life. And I think those lessons can genuinely come from bodybuilding. What do you think about that? Um... I'm not saying they do. <laughs> I'm saying they can. No, uh, pre-bodybuilding, I had a very poor work ethic. Right. Um, very poor indeed. And uh, it's definitely helped me learn to apply yourself. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, but it, it reminded me of a conversation I've often had about my brother. So my brother's like 21 stone of fat and does no physical exercise and basically lives off McDonald's. And the assumption would be that he's lazy, right? And certainly fitness people, I've got friends with fitness, like, oh, your brother, the lazy one. He's probably the hardest worker I know. You know, he'll work five in the morning till nine, ten at night, seven days a week for the whole summer season. They run a business selling pet-related stuff. They do shows all over the country. Um, And um, it's just that the gym and physical fitness isn't on his list of things that are important. Yeah. I realize this is slightly unrelated to the conversation, but um, I do think within the gym, within our subculture, we have an assumption that if someone's fat, that they're lazy. Yeah, totally. Um, terrible. And uh, it's really not the case. No, no. Um, it, it, can can, be. it can be. Yeah. It can be, but you can get thin people that are lazy cunts, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so there are, I see lots of positives from the gym. We can moan a lot. I can moan a lot. I see loads of positives coming to people's lives from the gym. I also see lots of negatives. I see, we talked about that last time, obsessiveness, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but I guess you can have those qualities without the gym. You certainly can, but young people have to learn them some way. Sport yeah. is a great way to learn them. The problem is all the baggage that comes, all the other stuff like do what the coach says at all costs. Well, that can lead to a variety of horrible problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, always focus on performance all that matters is winning if you really want it you can get it well most people aren't going to win most people aren't going to be a world champ so what happens to them I, I, what I keep seeing a lot of like this this 100% idea that if you work really hard and do this thing you will get the thing you want no you won't nonsense no, it's you absolute won't. nonsense you know what's really interesting so I I ride motorbikes. I love to ride motorbikes. Never once have I thought, if I, if I go out on my bike every single day, I'll be as good as Valentino Rossi. Yeah. Never occurred to me. Because I know that Valentino Rossi is something that I can't have, and that's talent. Yeah. 
But with bodybuilding and sport, people think if I train hard enough and I want it bad enough, and probably if I take enough drugs, I can be as good as Phil Heath. And they forget all the talent and genetic factors that come into it. Yeah, yeah. And then the phrase, the phrase that kills me is a variation of at all costs or whatever the cost. Yeah. Like, like literally what that cost is, is death. Like if you want to go at all costs, whatever it takes, that's the phrase, isn't it? Whatever it takes, Just whatever, whatever it takes is, is brutal. Like, like that's, that's the end point of that logic is if it kills me, it's okay. Yeah. Thoughts on never settle. Ugh. And the whole idea behind that is that it doesn't matter where you're at. It does. I don't care. I don't care if, if you're the shittest person in the gym. Yeah, yeah. The thing that matters to me about somebody, the thing that I look for in an athlete, the thing I look for in a human, is is that inability to go. That will do. Okay. Yes. Up to a point, as always, because I'll, I'll give you my perf- the, the example, which is the most personal to me, is I got, I have everything that i want out of my life currently i've worked really really hard to get what i want yeah and at some point i'm gonna die and i want to have not continued to strive after the things that i've already got i've got them yeah yeah. so it it never settle until you've reached the point where you've set your goals and you've reached them and at that point realize that life isn't about constantly striving but there's also some like time to sit reflect and chill out and have a beer with your mates i genuinely believe at that point i'll drop down dead <laughs> I genuinely believe <laughs> well i've i've basically I, i've largely semi-retired unofficially and, and, I, and I don't i don't work as hard as i once did we've had a conversation about this well a lot of the time i'll get up in the morning i'll smash my work and i'm done yeah and I, I won't work again because i've got my work done i could work harder as i can always write another academic paper i can always try and put another funding bid in whatever I don't need to. I do all right at work. I continue on. So I just have literally settled. And and when you have that phrase, people are like, "What? What?" Like, well, I I I couldn't be happier. I had a conversation recently about um, it was all around death, and I said to them, "You know, if, if I drop dead tomorrow, I'll be I'll be fine because I've I've had a really good life. I'm happy with what I've achieved." They're like, but what? So you want to die? No, of course not. I'm going to live for hopefully a few more years. Yeah, but. The goal is to never settle and get to your point where you're sitting on your chair going, you know what, I've done all right here. I'm happy with this. That is far more positive, I think. One reason is it gives you an endpoint to properly strive for. If you don't have that endpoint, well, where are you going, what are you doing? You've got to have a destination point. Yeah. You get to that destination, it's not what you thought, carry on, whatever. But you have to have some sort of endpoint. But then also it gives you the ability to know that the striving is limited. That means that I've spent 12 hour days regularly when I was doing my PhD, hammering it, feeling like I'm ruining my mental health, feel like I got, I got you know, overweight because I couldn't go to the gym anymore. But that was okay for that short time because I was striving for that thing, which I then got. So now I spend a lot more time chilling out, going to, the, going to my own gym upstairs, um, you know, talking to people like you, going to the pub, walking the dog. So that, it's that... It's that yeah. complexity between never settling, settle when you've got what you want. One that comes with, dare I say, age. Um, <laughs> you can say it. You can and say on it. that note, I'm going to have to look <laughs> and hear people not arriving for the not gym. Fair enough, fair enough. Good man. Um,
but uh, yeah. You've got to change your trademark now. You've got to change your trademark. Never settle until you've got just about enough. It doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? it doesn't, no, it doesn't, unfortunately. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll streamline that in some way. Okay, mate. Good stuff. Um, I'll speak to you soon. All right, then, mate. See you later. Oh, um, plug. Website and shit. Oh, yeah. Uh, immersiveresearch.co.uk. People can have a look at the website, dig around in it. There's a lot of research up there. There's a few videos up there. The first strong video is up there if people want to see the video of it. Um, although, disappointingly, it moved between us, so no one noticed that I was drinking red wine when we did it, which is a shame. That's a shame. Anyway, immersiveresearch.co.uk. No problem. Thank you very much, Dr. Matthews.